We are thankful for the cross, Lord Jesus Christ. We're thankful for your incredible work on the cross and for the grace that is offered us by way of your sacrifice. And as we turn our attention to your word now, we ask that you'd be with us, and we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. You can be seated. Most of us have virtually given up sharing our faith. And I've talked about this through Acts already. We're in Acts 14 this morning. But today I want to take it from an entirely different angle. And there's a couple of reasons why many of us give up sharing our faith. One of the reasons many of us give up sharing our faith is we blame it on our personality. We're more introverted. We're not comfortable. The second probably largest reason many people stop sharing their faith is they blame it on their knowledge base. They just don't know enough. What if someone ask me a question I don't understand. What if someone talks to me about something of which I don't know the answer? But there are other reasons that I'd like to name the next two as probably the largest two. And we're just not aware of them. It's this. We're not dependent on the Holy Spirit the way we should be. He's the one who convicts of sin. He's the one who draws people to the Father. And we don't rely on him the way we should. And secondly... We can't discern, we've stopped discerning the way people need to hear the gospel. We've stopped discerning the way people need to hear the gospel. This may be the most thoughtful, you can disagree at the end, message I've preached that I'm going to address parenting in, uh, in years. As I've really contemplated the shift that's happening in our culture. I grew up in a day where as the gospel was proclaimed, it was proclaimed in a way that I responded based on guilt and consequence. I understood the law. I understood God's law. It had been taught. It was posted in my public school growing up. And so I could understand when I had transgressed God's law. And in understanding my transgression against God's law, I knew and experienced guilt when I had done so. And so then I needed forgiveness and salvation from my sin in terms of the guilt I was experiencing because of the law. But that is not our world today. It is not how the average Hamiltonian lives. It is not how the average Canadian lives. We live very differently. We don't know God's law. And so because of that, the law is unable to produce within us the guilt that's required. I'll get to this later, but you'll see that clearly in Romans 7. Right? Paul talks about that very clearly. And so what happens is when you're dealing with a group of people that aren't under the law, your approach has to be radically different. So for some of us, we talk to our kids around guilt and consequence, and in talking to them around guilt and consequence in our parenting skills, they're unresponsive because they don't understand the law, and in not understanding the law, no guilt comes upon them when we're asking them to obey the law, in essence. It just won't be there. Same with other people in our culture. I remember this happened years ago. I was was at the uh, young adults night that was basketball. All the young men who come, there's 28 to 30 of them most weeks had been incarcerated, and I was there one week teaching, and I was talking about guilt, and the guys just stopped me, right? And they're like, hey, all these guys in their 20s, all been incarcerated. They're like, pastor, like, we don't know what you're talking about. 
I'm like, what do you mean? And one guy's like, I've never experienced guilt. I'm like, you've been in jail a couple of times. You don't feel guilty? He said, for what? That's exactly what he said, for what? I'm like, you went once for like, you know, like you assault, assault. And you feel no guilt. And I went around the room. No one experienced guilt. No one felt guilty. No one. And so how do you address, how do you bring the gospel, the same need of a savior, the gospel is still the same, to a group that doesn't experience guilt? Because there are people that don't experience guilt. They simply don't. We have a hard time believing that. But then if you think about our young people, where the world has taught them God doesn't exist, so there is no being of which you're accountable to, Right? That's the thing the world's taught everyone. God doesn't exist, so there's no being in which you're accountable to, which means you create your own reality. You live how you want. As you think through all of that and the ramifications of that, it means then that you don't experience guilt when it comes to law because you don't believe there is law because you believe that you are your moral compass, not God. Is this making sense to anyone? So if you believe that you are your moral compass, not God, and you believe that there's a higher being or superior being, then as you come to talk to your kids or you come to present the gospel, what they're hearing and what you're saying are not going to fit. They're not going to match in any way. They're not going to understand what you're saying. They're not going to hear it. Whether this is your adult children or whether it's your grown children. And so, so we think through things. Ethan's made this observation in our house. Last night we had my mom over, right? And my brother and our whole family. And during dinner, Ethan's quite comical. He's actually got a great sense of humor. He just kind of shot out and he said, he said, you know, my parents have really changed in their parenting. Like, they were kind of oppressive. I don't think that's the word you used. But that's the idea with me, right? Very hands-on and, right? And then they just gave up with Abby. And we were like, that is not true. And then he said they've struck this incredible balance, perfect balance, that's what you said, with the twins. And, uh, and, and I can't remember exactly the wording, but that's the idea, that you, you kind of, whoo, try to figure things out, right? And so as we parent, you realize, okay, we've got to shift in some of the ways we think and some of the ways we operate. You look at Jesus. Now, obviously, as Jesus is teaching, it's pre-cross, pre-resurrection, so he's not talking about the resurrection in the same way in people's understanding. But you look at the way he, he interacts with the woman at the well. And then you look at the way he interacts with Nicodemus. Then you look at the way he interacts with the rich young ruler. Does he present the gospel, the same gospel, it's always the same gospel, in the same way in each interaction? The answer is no. The gospel doesn't change. We need Jesus. Our lives need to be changed. We need to repent. The gospel is the same, but our approach has got to be different. And in Acts 14, Paul's approach is radically different than Acts 13 in two different cities. Radically different when you examine the way he presents the gospel in both. You see, when I needed, was I needed because I believed from a young age that God existed and that he loved me. I needed freedom, forgiveness from my sin and from guilt. What my children need is something radically different. Because the world has told them there is no superior being, there is no being like that, so they don't experience guilt because they are their moral compass, not God. And let me get into what that might be. At Iconium, this is verse 1, Paul and Barnabas went as usual into the Jewish synagogue. There they spoke so effectively that a great number of Jews and Greeks believed. But the Jews who refused to believe stirred up the other Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So Paul and Barnabas spent considerable time there speaking boldly for the Lord who confirmed the message of his grace by enabling them to perform signs and wonders. 
The people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews, others with the apostles. There was a plot afoot among the Gentiles and Jews together with their leaders to mistreat them and stone them. But they found out about it and fled to the Lyconian cities of Lystra and Derb and to the surrounding country where they continued to preach the gospel. I'll pause there for a moment. So we start out very similar. Paul goes to the synagogue like he always goes. He's looking for the God-fearing Gentiles, those who've adopted into the Gentile or into the Jewish community who aren't Jewish believers, but they've seen something about the true God in it, and to God-fearing Jews. And if you look at Acts 13, what does he do? Acts 13, when he does this, he quotes scripture. He talks about Jesus being the Messiah. In Acts 13, he moves straight from David, King David, to the Messianic promises. He doesn't talk about creation at all. Right? He debates in this form and way. So here he does probably something very similar. It doesn't give us his speech here. But he speaks so effectively that a whole group of Jews and Gentiles believed. But he's doing so in the synagogue, so the Gentiles there are most likely God-fearing Gentiles, those that are adopting the Jewish faith. They spend a lot of time there. They're speaking boldly for the Lord. God grants them signs and wonders. People are divided some believe, some don't, and they mistreat them. Uh, they plan to, and they plan to stone them, and they leave. Because it shouldn't surprise us that there's opposition to the gospel. The gospel is a dividing gospel. Jesus says this in Matthew 10. Do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. I have come to turn man against father and daughter against mother and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be members of his own household. He says the gospel is going to actually divide some families. And people that you would have considered your enemy are actually going to become part of your family. Is that fascinating? He said, don't be surprised if the gospel divides families. If there's parents and children who are divided because of the gospel. Children who decide to hate the Lord. Or parents who turn away from faith or who never have faith when children come to faith. Don't be surprised if there's a dividing gospel. He said, and don't be surprised if people you consider enemies become part of your household. They're actually saved. And God's grace grips them and they join into the household. Don't be surprised by that. And so we shouldn't be surprised when there's opposition to the gospel. There will be opposition to the gospel, including in our own homes including with our children, including with siblings. It's not something we look forward to. It's not something we want, but it will happen. Jesus tells us it will happen. Now, when he's talking about leaving peace later in Scripture, he is talking about how he will leave an ultimate peace. But here he's saying, I want you to know, this gospel will be a dividing gospel. Now, that is a quote from Micah 7, Micah 7, 6. Micah 7, 7 then says this. But as for me, Micah says, I watch in hope for the Lord. I wait for God, my Savior. My God will hear me. He said, but I wait. I wait in hope for the Lord. And so Paul and Barnabas, after knowing that there's going to be opposition, they continue to preach the gospel, just moving from place to place. So we need to live out our faith radically. In Lystra, there was a man who was lame. He had been that way from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul as he was speaking, Paul looked at him directly, saw that he had faith to be healed, called out, stand up on your feet. At that, the man jumped up and began to walk. Now note the repetition here. He was lame, verse 8. He'd been that way from birth. He'd never walked. Paul three times repeats this so people know 
that this is a medical condition the man had, and it was serious. He was lame from birth. Luke writes that for us so that we know that. Um, but he's hearing Paul speak, and, and Paul heals him. And in verse 11, it says, when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they shouted in another language. I'll get to that in a moment. Caring for the needy brings about a witness to the world. Caring for the needy brings about a witness to the world. You see, as God transforms our lives, and we see the people in the world that the world ostracizes, that the world marginalizes, when we care for them because Christ calls us to, because in his kingdom, the first will be last, the last will be first. Right? When we put the margins at the center, even though the world thinks it should happen, they have no explanation for it. I saw this in this building over and over and over again. I remember being on top of this building with a number of people, politicians and stuff, and one of the politicians said, what kind of people give their hard-earned money to help people they don't know? Because the government can't do this. The government can't find people, for the most part, that will just sacrificially give to a cause. They can't explain it. And when you get, a, you know, 100% of a tax deduction when you give to a political party, but you only get a certain portion of it when you give to a charity, right? They're confused. Who would give large sums of money to help house people when they knew we were putting over $2 million into the housing? At that point, it was almost $3 million, and they copped up a bit more in the end. But they're like, what kind of people? What kind of people help people they don't know with their hard-earned money? And I just smiled and said, God, God's people do. I remember the one MP just turned around to me and said, Who? I said, God's people. People that have been transformed by the grace of Jesus Christ. This is what I said to all the people. Said, people have been transformed by God. God's people do this. God's people have been so transformed that we want to help people that are in need. It's one of the things that God works within us to love people that aren't like us. You've seen us all through the book of Acts. In Acts, of course, an emphasis starting with helping those within the community of faith. There were no needy among them, we heard in Acts 2. They were sharing their possessions, we heard in Acts 2, and in Acts 4. The whole idea, Acts 6, of the distribution of food. They were caring for those among them that were needy. But then it extends beyond that. You see that as Paul comes. Even in this healing, this man that was lame, poverty-stricken, right? often beggars. And so Paul's both alleviating physical suffering and poverty by allowing the man to be able to work after this. But the world looks, and, and here, though they see the, a miracle, like a, a miracle of healing, the, the world today still sees it miraculous when you care for the needy sacrificially, when you come alongside of them and you're offering to them, and it grants us a hearing, an incredible hearing. On Friday night, we learned that uh, one of the young mothers in the Karen family passed away. There's four children, two in their early 20s, two in their teens, and their dad died years ago. She's been in, in and out of mental health care for a long time. And so now these four, um, two, two in their early 20s, two in their teens, these four children are on their own. And this week they're trying to figure out funeral plans in a culture they don't understand. They haven't been able to see their mom because, uh, see her body yet, because I'm sure there's some type of investigation going on. And I said to Close, hey, Close, he's been in touch with the family. Let's see how the Karen congregation come alongside of them. And I know in the fall, we paid for a funeral in the fall when the young man in their congregation 
had been murdered on the streets of Hamilton, and, uh, and we're prepared to do it again. I haven't even talked to our elders yet, but I just know our elders. I know our, 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 our finance team. If, if we need to come up with some money this week, we'll just send an email out and say, how do we help this family? But it's more than that. I mean, is, is someone going to adopt them into their home? Is someone for the Karen family going to do that? Is someone going to walk alongside them? Who's going to befriend them? Who, I, mean, I mean, when I was talking to Wally Friday night, I mean, their disillusionment with God in this moment is high. Who's going to point them to Christ? What's that going to look like? And, and for us, it's just not something we talk about. It's something we want to do. This, this is a family that was part of our Karen congregation here. That's going through immense suffering. Who's going to walk alongside of them? Who's going to love on them? Who's going to point them to Christ? Who's going to practically care for them? Who's going to provide for funeral arrangements? Well, it's got to be God's people. It's, it's got to be God's people. And we've got to just be able to come up and say, how do we do that? And it speaks to the role. When we, when we came alongside in the fall of that family, uh, the Karen family, and I was dealing with the police in that situation because their son, 18-year-old, had been murdered. He'd been shot three times, and he was run over by the vehicle to make sure he was dead. And when I was dealing with them and with the police and with the translation of everyone, the officers were finally standing outside of me the, of the house of the family one day, seven other siblings, 18 of them living in the house, 17 now, because he had passed away. And the officers standing there said, oh, they said, that every family we visit would have a church like yours. We've seen nothing like this, they said. We've seen nothing like this. That, that doesn't make us special. It's just what we should be doing as Christians, isn't it? And the witness that happens. Now, now note what happens here in town, verse 11. So when the crowd sees what Paul had done, they shouted in the Lyconian language, the gods have come down in human form. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul they called Hermes because he was the chief speaker. I may have been a little salted if I was Paul. Like, Zeus is a powerful God. Anyway, um, I'm kidding. The priest Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought bulls and wreaths to the city gates because he and the crowd wanted to offer sacrifices to them. This is how pagan the culture was. They're, they've healed a man. They've just entered into the town to share the gospel. They, they've healed a man. And everyone assumes it's their gods. It's Zeus. It's Hermes. And they call Barnabas Zeus. They call Paul uh, Hermes because Paul is the speaker and Hermes is, of course, the speaker of the gods. Zeus, of course, the chief deity who is full of lightning and rain. Those were his powers. You may, may, Zeus is often depicted with the lightning bolt of the Greek gods. Hermes, the messengers of the gods. And now, because there's a priest of Zeus outside, uh, his temple's just outside the city. This would have been the primary uh, temple of Zeus, just like there were multiple synagogues or churches, multiple temples to Zeus. And here they are, they're, they're about to sacrifice animals to Paul and Barnabas as Zeus and Hermes. Now this shouldn't surprise us, should it? I mean, when you eliminate God out of the equation, you got to put something else in. So what, what do we put in? I mean, what do we put in instead of God? We have a fascination with sci-fi. Now, I love sci-fi. Fascination with Star Wars. Fascination with Star Trek. Fascination with Marvel. Fascination with multiverse now. And I mean, no one, virtually no one, 40, 50 years ago, would ever have espoused a multiverse theory of, of a possibility of a universe existence. And now it's everywhere, everywhere. Popular people I read, scientists are like, possibly of a multiverse. I'm like, you've been influenced by comic books. What's wrong with you, man? Like, I'm serious. Like, what is going on with our world? 
that the multiverse theory was first postulated by writers of comics, science fiction. And now they're trying to prove that it's a possibility that maybe the writers of Thor back in the 70s, they were onto something. I'm like, really? Like, really? This is where we're at right now. It, it, it's a sad commentary on our culture. But how many young people do I talk to who are convinced that, no, there's, there's got to be a multiverse out there. I saw it in Doctor Strange. And I'm like, really? You saw it in a sci-fi movie and now it's real? Woo! Um, but it's what's happening. And it's happening all around us. And it shouldn't surprise us. It happened in their day. Paul and Barnabas, Barnabas heal a man and they're immediately like, it's Zeus and Hermes. I mean, if something miraculous happened today, it's not going to surprise me if people are like, Thor must be here. Let's look for Thor, right? Loki, maybe it's Loki, right? And, and people start to talk about Asgardian mythology. But when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard of this, they tore their clothes. They rushed out to the crowd shouting, friends, why are you doing this? We, too, are only human like you. We are bringing you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. In the past, he let the nations go their own way. Yet, he has not left himself without testimony. He has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops for the seasons, in, the, in their seasons. He provides you with plenty of food and he fills your hearts with joy. And even with these words, they had difficulty keeping the crowd from sacrificing to them. I want you to note some of the difference between Acts 13 and Acts 14. In Acts 13, there's no mention of creation. Paul's in the synagogue talking to Jews and God-fearing Greeks. He starts right off with Moses. Why? He knows they all believe God created. There's no need to go there. So he doesn't go there in Acts 13. In Acts 13, he proves Jesus is the Messiah. He quotes from Scripture on multiple occasions. In Acts 13, he talks about the need of forgiveness and the law. And there's no mention of guilt or forgiveness or the law in Acts 14. There's no quotation here from the Bible in Acts 14, but he does mention creation. He talks about it. He says this, you're to turn from these worthless things to the living God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. So he knows that this group doesn't believe in God the way he does, and he explains that God is a creator because they assigned a God to every part of the creation, a God to the sun, a God to the moon, a God to the rivers, a God to the mountains. Right here, he's like, no, we're talking about the God who's made the heavens and the earth and everything in them, one God. And he's speaking that to a God, to a people group, sorry, who believe in a plurality of gods. One God, he says. He then says that what he has for them, this is verse 13, 15, sorry, is good news. What we're bringing you is good news. What we have to tell you is good news. What we have for you is something that's going to be good for you. You're going to be delighted in it. He then tells them to turn from their worthless things to the living God. Turn from the things you're giving your life to. This is still repentance. Turning is a repentance, is repenting, it's a repenting act. Turn from these things. Turn from these things. Turn from these things. And he says that this God is kind. He's kind. He's shown his kindness, verse 17, by giving you rain from heaven, crops in their season. He provides you with lots of food, and he fills your hearts with joy. Now, why doesn't he go to the law? Why doesn't he tell them they've broken God's law? Because they don't know the law, and they have no clue that they've broken it. Paul says such in Romans 7. 
I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. For I would not have known what covenanting was if the law had not said, you shall not covenant. Paul said, I wouldn't have known what covenanting was had the law not said, don't covet. I would not have known what sin was had the law not explained it. But sin, verse, chapter, verse 8 of chapter 7, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of coveting. Once I knew coveting was against God's law, and that was Paul's sin issue, man, I saw I was coveting everywhere. For apart from the law, sin was dead. Once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, spring, a sin sprang to life and I died. Paul says this, apart from the law, sin's dead. He's not saying sin isn't active. He's saying you don't know you're sinning. And so if you don't understand God's law, if God's law is in there, you don't understand you're sinning. And if you don't understand you're sinning, how do you know you need a savior? It's why, it's why and I appreciate this, but the, the way of the master, which is an evangelistic tool that people use to often explain to people that they're sinners, explain to them that they have guilt, and explain them they need for a savior, worked for a whole generation. But it virtually doesn't work at all anymore. Virtually just doesn't work. Because people start to debate you. What do you mean I'm a sinner? How do, who are you to say I'm a sinner? Who, who are you to cast judgment on me? Who are you to be my moral compass? Because they don't believe God anymore as our moral compass. Who are you to tell me I'm lying? So how do we speak the gospel to this generation? How do we speak it into our children's lives? How do we speak it into our friends' lives, our colleagues' lives at work? How do we do this? Well, let me offer a couple of thoughts. I, uh, I, I, I grew up in an environment where I believed in the law. It was posted in our schools. I grew up believing in the law. And in growing up believing in the law, I believed that in guilt and consequence. And that's been my predominant method of preaching the gospel. But it is always helpful. Yesterday, I was talking to Ethan. The girls were at the table, breakfast table. Back to you. I love you, man. And uh, we, were t- we were hanging out at the breakfast table. And I was encouraging Ethan to do something. And Ethan was like, Dad, remember this? Why are you always guilt tripping me? You don't remember that? And, and I said, I don't guilt trip you. And Jill and Ivy said, Dad, that's all you do. I'm like, what? It's not all I do. And then Ivy and Jill were like, Dad, you, you, you're really good at guilt tripping. I'm like, what is going on here? My family's turned against me. Um, but the problem is if you have a group that don't feel guilt, you can't guilt trip them. Because they feel no guilt. Because they don't believe there's a moral compass of which they need to adhere to, except for their own. Because what does this generation believe? What are they taught? Be true to yourself. Be true to your inner self. Be true to who you are. That's the, that's, that is their guiding principle. Be true to who you are. Create yourself. That's what we're being told today. When our culture has said, there are no genders. That's what they've said in Canada law now, right? There are no longer any genders. And you Google genders in Canada, you get between 58 and 72. You get kitten. You get puppy. Well, pup, P-U-P. You get genders that you didn't think were possible to be genders. Because you can now, they believe, create yourself. But here's what happens. Their guilt is found in their failure, and they fear it. Their guilt is found in their failure that in trying to find themselves, they're unable to do so. 
Because they think it will be this, they think it will be this, they think it will be this, they think it will be this. And they try over and over and over again, these young people. And their guilt is found in the failure of being unable to find themselves. Their guilt is found in the failure of being able to create themselves. They think, well, if only I try this, if only I try that. And they find it to be longing. They find that it's unsatisfactory. And they find themselves guilt-ridden. And their guilt isn't in the breaking of the law. The guilt is in being unable to form themselves, find themselves, and create themselves. And then as they give themselves to something, both the meaning of it and, 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 and the continuation of it, whatever that is, in forming themselves and finding themselves, and being true to themselves. And they're unable to continue it the way they did consistently. So let's just give examples of this, right? So, so, so they, they become radical around creationism. And then, uh, not creationism, and, and uh, what do you call it? Environmentalism. We believe in creationism. Um, and so they become radical in environmentalism. And they, they do something online that other people don't think is radical in environmentalism. And everybody wants to do what with them? They want to cancel them. Right? You see this all the time going on. Somebody becomes radical in race reconciliation, then they do something, or they find out that there's something in their past when they were, you know, nine years old that wasn't very kind, and it's posted somewhere, and everybody wants to cancel them. And now they're living with the guilt that they can't become who they want to become, they can't create who they want to be, and they failed in that, and they fear moving forward. They're actually crippled by it, and they don't know what to do. And the gospel speaks into this, and it's so kind. Because God has created them. Is that not good news? He knit them together in their mother's womb. God has created them, and they need to understand the truth that they are intimately, intricately, and wondrously made. And he has a purpose for them, and it's greater than any purpose they could discover for themselves. You see, he is the only one that truly satisfies. And as Tim Keller says it so well, he is the only master who ever forgives when you fail. You see, if their master becomes environmentalism, when they fail, it's unforgiving. If their master becomes their success in whatever it would be, entertainment, and they fail, it's unforgiving. If their master becomes race reconciliation and they fail, it's unforgiving. It's unrelentless and it's unforgiving and they're canceled. Isn't it good news that God doesn't cancel anybody? Isn't it good news that he welcomes people in? And so instead of us operating on a guilt consequence way of presenting the gospel, we need to begin to think about how we operate on a way of the fulfillment of God and how he longs to walk alongside of us in a way that he will be a master who is kind and gentle and gracious and forgiving and loving. How we don't need to find ourselves because God has made us. Is that not great news? Our identity is found in him. It's found in him. Because you end up being controlled by the very things you want to live for. And when you do whatever it is you do to try to get there and then to try to keep it and it doesn't work out, it also wreaks, it just wreaks havoc on your mental health. Previous to the pandemic, Gene Twinge talked about how we were in the largest mental health epidemic in world history, in recorded world history. That was previous to the pandemic. Coming out of the pandemic, it's exponentially larger. 
So how do we speak into that? What does that look like? Well, Paul says that in these few words in Acts 14. The good news is that God created. You don't need to create yourself. God has done it. You can turn from the things that are empty, worthless idols, that's what he calls them in Acts 14, and turn to the living God who satisfies completely and forgives comprehensively. When you fail, he doesn't cancel you. When you fail, he still welcomes you home. Isn't that what our young people need to hear today? They fear, they tremble at being canceled. And yet, our God is a God who doesn't cancel anyone. He frees from enslavement. And he's kind. He provides, Paul said. He's the one who's watered your crops. He's the one who's granted or filled your hearts with joy. So over the last couple of years, I really agonized over what does my approach look like? How do you share the gospel well? Because there's a generation before me, my parents' age, that still need to operate on guilt consequence because that's how they were raised. They were still raised, anyone beyond, above me in age, with, in public school system with the Ten Commandments hanging, sometimes being read. And they still operate on a guilt consequence. Some don't because culture shifted them. But the generation under me doesn't operate at all in that way. And the gospel's the same. Is that not great news? We're not changing that people need Jesus. He's the answer. It's only him. But we need to think about how we explain things. That's why in one circumstance, Paul doesn't even talk about creation. He just talks about messianic promises and quotes the Bible. In another circumstance, he, doesn't, he, he talks about creation and doesn't quote from the Bible because they don't believe in the same authority. That's not to say when you hear them staying and, and discipling them that they're not going to have an understanding of the authority of Scripture. I've got to move on quick here. Verse 19. Then some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and won the crowd over, and they stoned Paul and dragged him outside the city thinking he was dead. Like, this is horrific. I mean, Paul would have been in a great deal of pain. They think he's dead. They've dragged him out, so he's either gone into a coma or he's unconscious. I mean, he would have been severely bruised. We're talk probably talking broken ribs, right? I mean, he would have gone through an excruciating pain, enough that they think they've killed him. But after the disciples had gathered around him, he got up and went back into the city. That had to be a bit of a surprise for everybody, right? I don't, I mean, the Bible doesn't say. They gather around him. I'm assuming they're praying for him. And Paul gets up, goes back in the city. The next day, he and Barnabas, they leave for Derb. They preach the gospel in that city, won a large number of disciples, and they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, and they strengthened the disciples, encouraging them to remain true to the faith. So, so now they're discipling them. Now they're talking about God's law. Now they're showing them how important scripture is. Now they're walking through messianic promises, just like we do. But it wasn't the starting point. It's how they begin to disciple. And then he says this, we must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. You know, non-Christians don't understand hardships. I mean, I, I've quoted this before. I don't have the quote in front of me today, but Richard Dawkins, when he talks about suffering, says it's pointless. There's no point for suffering in the universe. It just randomly, haphazardly happens. Well, that isn't very encouraging, is it? But when we know hardship happens and it can cause our character to be formed into Christ's likeness, that it can drive us to God and a reliance on him of which we never had before, it changes everything. And so we shouldn't be surprised that there will be hardships. 
So Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for them in the church and with prayer and fasting committed them to the Lord in whom they'd put their trust. And after going to Pisidia, they came to Palanthia. And when they had preached the word in Perga, they went down to Atelia. So you see here Paul and Barnabas going back, they're teaching. They're helping people to grow in their faith. And now what are they doing? They're fasting and praying. We've talked about that other weeks, how they commit themselves to fasting, where they're withholding food, look likely for a day or two or three from their bodies, so that as they're fasting, they're reliant more upon God. As they're doing that, they're praying about who will lead the church as they move on to other missionary parts of the world. And as they're establishing these leaders in these churches, because Paul in his first missionary journey is doing a bit of a circle back and forth and back and forth, uh, he's appointing these elders, and they're now godly men in these churches who are able to capably lead, because what do elders do? Typically four things. They give oversight, they keep sound doctrine, they pray, and they shepherd. Those are the four things you can see in Scripture. They give oversight, they keep sound doctrine, they pray, and they shepherd. And so they're finding these men in these churches, they're establishing them, and as they do so, they then move on. From Atelia, they sailed back to Antioch where they had been committed to the grace of God for the work they had now completed. On arriving there, they gathered the church together. They reported all that God had done through them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles and they stayed there a long time with the disciples, discipling them. So let me wrap up with a couple of thoughts. So how do we do this well today? I mean, here in two chapters, the whole churches are being established in short order as the gospel's going out. Right? They're being taught, they're being discipled, elders are being established, leadership is emerging. Well, one is this, we need to satisfy every longing. What is behind the longing to be true to yourself? What is behind the longing to create yourself? What are behind those longings today? There's a longing in our day for justice, may not be God's justice, but a longing for justice, there's a longing for acceptance. There's a longing around body image that's distorted by Instagram and Snapchat and all of that stuff. As I said, in their day when they saw the power of God and a lame man's heel, they think it's Zeus and Hermes. We would think it's Thor in the multiverse. Let me paint a picture for you for a moment. What is God's kingdom like? God's kingdom is a kingdom of justice. Is that not great news? There will be no injustice in his kingdom. He hates injustice. God is always, only, ever, only against evil. You've heard me say that so many times. That is good news, isn't it? Aren't you against evil? I'm against evil. Now, we're not always against evil the way God defines it, but God's perfect, we're not. And God is only, always, ever against evil. So he's a God of justice and justice will reign in his kingdom forever and ever. He's a God who loves from every culture, language, custom, and tribe. Is that not great news? We live in a day where people are like, we need to be more understanding of other cultures, more accepting of, man, Christians should be leading in this. No one should understand this more than God's people. No one should be more welcoming than God's people. Because God is saving people from every language, custom, culture, and tribe. The least racist people on this planet should be God's people. In fact, I'll tell you, if you're a racist, you're not a mature Christian. You cannot be. Cannot be. Because God is saving from every language, custom, culture, and tribe. That is his kingdom. 
It's what our young people long for. And his kingdom will have a greater justice than they long for. His kingdom will show a greater diversity than they could ever imagine. Love and acceptance. He is love. Is that not great news? It's not just that he has love in his very essence and being. He is love. He's not going to cancel you. You're never going to go to him for forgiveness and have him push you aside or turn you away. He's always going to welcome you in. What great news is that for those that fear being canceled? Oh, he loves. He is the God of love, and he loves to welcome people, and he loves, he longs to bring them in. And so there is justice in a way that they cannot understand beyond any of their imagination. There is diversity in a way that is beyond anything they could hope for. There is love and acceptance beyond anything they have ever thought through. We will be in resurrected bodies. I don't think we'll be mesmerized with them like, hey, look at me in the mirror, right? I don't even know if there'll be mirrors in heaven, to be honest, right? But we'll be in resurrected bodies. I mean, people ask me, what will that look like? I mean, I think you'll be in peak physical form for you. People are like, really? I'm like, yeah. It means I'll be able to take on Calvin. He's one of our young adults who come here. Who He runs. He does like triple jump at like the Ontario level. He's an incredible athlete. And I'm like, Calvin, in my resurrected body, I'm taking you down. <laughs> right? Now, he'll have a resurrected body, so I don't know what that's going to look like. But we'll have resurrected bodies. I mean, when you think of all the body image stuff that's going through... Don't you long for the day when you're in a body that the Lord's going to give you? A perfect body that will never sin. I mean, don't you see how beautiful the gospel is? Here's what we need to do today. The gospel in and of itself is so beautiful. It's so glorious. We just need to present it, and we want them to want it to be true. Does that make sense? So that the guilt they're experiencing when they're being canceled, the unforgiveness they're experiencing when they've done something wrong, they realize that is not God's kingdom. That is not his principles. And because of Jesus, because of his death and resurrection, Andrew, you guys can come up. Good has triumphed over evil. I mean, people point to that iconic moment in the Avengers movie when Thor shows up with his newly made weapon and he comes down into Wakanda and he takes it and he hurls it and he destroys so much of the enemy. And then he leaps into the air and lightning is flowing from every part of them. And the whole theater is cheering if you're in those theaters in those moments. That's nothing, that's nothing, that's nothing compared to the return of our Savior. When he shows up, the trump will sound, the cloud will part, he will return and he will enter into our existence, bringing us into his, where heaven and earth will meet completely. It'll be glorious in this moment. And justice will reign. And love will reign. And diversity will reign. And we will be in resurrected bodies because good, good will have triumphed over evil. Satan and sin and death will be cast out. And that is the gospel that our generation desperately needs to hear. Would you pray with me? We are so thankful, God, for your goodness and grace in our lives. We're so thankful, Lord Jesus, for the way that you have worked in us. And I confess, God, that I have done a poor job of discerning what this generation needs to hear. And I so often operate out of guilt and consequence. And God, this generation, they need to hear of your justice, of your love of how diverse you are. They need to hear of the hope of resurrection and that good triumphs over evil. 
God, they need to long for all that you're bringing with you, for what you're doing now as your kingdom has come, Jesus, and as it will come in its fullness. So that, God, they can turn away from anything they have believed in to turn to you. God, may that be true of us here. May for each of us here you cause us, oh God, to just understand how to better take the gospel that we love and communicate it to those around us. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.